0: I hope you'll open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. This whole chapter is a marvelous chapter to consider at the beginning of a new year, which we're still at. And as I read this entire passage, it seemed to me like the first four verses really encapsulate, I think, what would be Paul's New Year's message to a group of Christians anywhere, particularly Colossae, but now today to us. Here's the thing about pagan religions. They're about convenience. A man can bring his little offering and bow down to his little idol and then go back to living the way he always has with his conscience being eased. There's, there's no pressure on him to be moral or honest or hardworking. There's no correlation between behavior and belief. And that was the case in the ancient world. And then along came Christianity and now it was a whole new ball game. Faith in Christ meant that Christ now dwelt within a person And one began living Christ's life through the power of Christ's Spirit, and it was impossible to live the same old life that one lived before. And I think the Apostle Paul is trying to remind the Colossian Christians of this very thing. The main idea in these verses is, look, you're now in Christ. Stop raking around in the muck and start gazing into the heavens. Look at these four verses. You'll notice two parallel imperatives. Seek the things that are above and set your mind on things that are above. They're semantically equivalent. They say the same thing in slightly different ways. Now, that's the exhortation for the morning. But he also gives five reasons for thinking about things above. Number one is because you have been raised with Christ, right at the beginning of verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and now you're alive spiritually in Christ. And then the second reason is because Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Our Lord and Savior, whom we love and adore and magnify, is there interceding for us. And then thirdly, because you've died with Christ. Now we're dead to sin. He died so that we can be released from the the penalty and the presence and the, the control, the power of sin over us. And then number four, he says, because your life is hidden with Christ in God. So the world and Satan himself can't touch us. And then number five in verse four, because you will appear with Christ in glory, which means this world is not my home. Now, here's how I wanna approach this passage. First, I wanna walk you through these five reasons. They're huge and the cumulative effect of them should be deeply motivating to all of us. And then I wanna discuss these things above. What, What exactly are those things? And then I wanna talk about what it means to set your minds on something. And this is important because we all struggle mightily with this. And then I want to reflect on why it's so hard to do that. It seems kind of mystical. And we've got jobs and houses and kids and neighbors whose dogs are digging holes in our lawns and mother-in-laws who hate us and financial stress and health issues and pastors hounding us to be more involved in church. And before you know it, March Madness is here. So it's hard to have our focus in heaven when the toilet keeps plugging up. And then finally, I want to give you some ideas about how to get there. How do I go about seeking things that are above without entering a monastery? All right, so that's the roadmap, let's get at it. Number one of these five reasons why our minds should be focused on Christ, the first one is because you've been raised with Christ. Now, one of my favorite commentaries, William Barclay said it as well as anybody. He said, the point that Paul is making is this. In baptism, the Christian dies and rises again. As the waters close over him, It's as if he was buried in death, and as he emerges from the waters, it's like being resurrected into a new life. Now, if that is so, the Christian cannot rise from baptism the same man that he went down into baptism. There must be a difference, and wherein is the difference? The difference lies in the fact that he can no longer be overly burdened with the trivial things of this life. Now, the first step of obedience for a Christian is baptism, immersion, which is a public way of identifying ourselves with Jesus Christ. And as Barclay put it, we are now alive in Christ. We are one with Christ. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We're a new creation. Paul put it in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then in Galatians 2.20 he said, it's no longer I that live but Christ who lives in me in the life I now live by the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So obviously, we have a new set of values. We care about the different things than we used to. I think of Zacchaeus, the crooked tax collector, who as soon as he accepted Christ, he wanted to make amends, and he promised to restore fourfold all the, that he had scammed, all the people that he had scammed in the course of his duties. Now, that's, that's evidence right there of being raised with Christ. He was already thinking on a higher plane. I'm always thrilled when people open their eyes after praying the sinner's prayer of repentance and faith and immediately they say, oh man, I, I've got, I got debts to pay. Uh, I need to ask forgiveness from somebody. I, I need to get a different job. I, I need to break this habit. See, all that is evidence of change. That's thinking like Christ. I, I used to ask people, when did you become a Christian? I don't ask them that anymore. What I ask him is, tell me about the time when Christ radically transformed your life. Tell me when the change took place. And then the second reason is because Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews 1.3 says, "'He is the radiance of the glory of God "'and the exact imprint of his nature, "'and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. "'After making purification for sins, "'he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high.'" That's our savior. He is in the heavens, sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. And in 1 Peter 3, 22, it says, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Paul invokes a very powerful image in our minds. But also, you go back to Luke 22, and you remember that passage where Peter denied the Lord for the third time. And Jesus, who's in the process of being beaten and tortured, turned and looked at him. And you know what that did to Peter? It broke him. He rushed out of the courtyard crying bitterly. In fact, literally it means he sobbed uncontrollably. Now, in my mind, Jesus Christ, having completed the work of atoning for my sins, he paid my penalty, he endured my agony, he took my reproach, he suffered my humiliation, he died my death. And after doing all that, he is now seated at the right hand of God and as he sits on his throne, he turns and looks at me. It's a look that says, I died to free you from the penalty and the power of sin. Now live accordingly. Paul reminds us that Christ conquered sin. He overcame evil so that we could live victoriously. It's all been done. His effort was successful. All that remains now is for us to go forth in that confidence. And when you return to your old way of life, your old sins in your mind, you ought to see Jesus with a crown of thorns on his head, blood running down his face, looking at you with disappointment. And it should have the same effect on you that it had on Peter. And then a third reason is because you have died with Christ. When Christ died on the cross as our substitute, we died with him. And the power of sin is now broken. It is possible for us now not to sin. Now, before Christ, it was impossible not to sin. But now after Christ, it is possible not to sin. And we have the power and the motivation to do that. Romans 6, 2 says, how then can we who died to sin still live in sin? And Galatians 6, 14 says, but far be it from me to boast except for this in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, I'm dead to the world. You're no longer a helpless slave to sin. You no longer get up in the morning and put on your armband, identifying you as a slave, and go about doing slave duties. You've been set free. In the Old Testament, the book of Esther, an edict was signed that on March 7th, all the citizens of the kingdom were given permission to seize the kill the Jews and seize all their property. The Jews were helpless. But as you know, the story, the king gave a second decree authorizing the Jews to defend themselves and seize the property of their attackers. In other words, they were no longer helpless to attack, they had the power to resist. In Christ, we have the power to resist, to rise above the bondage of sin, to break free. We died with Christ to the old ways, the life dominating sins. We're not helpless, we can overcome. It is our new nature, in fact, to overcome. The Apostle John says it this way, he said, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. And then the fourth reason is because your life is hidden with Christ in God. And and there's two things that are implied here. One is that the children of God are untouchable. Romans 8 lays it out in these five great imperatives. Since God is for us, Paul says, who can stand against us? We're invincible. Number two, he says, since he willingly gave his son, will he not also give us everything else that we need? He provided for the greatest need that we possibly had, and since he provided for the greatest need, won't he take care of all the little lesser needs? Number three, who dares accuse us? Because Christ is our attorney. He's our lawyer. Number four, who can condemn us, Paul asks. It's a rhetorical question because, because the judge is our father. And then number five, can anything ever separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is absolutely nothing. When I was a kid, I had a paper route. And there was a little demon-possessed boy who would throw acorns at me from behind the fence. And one day, one day he shot acorns at me with a slingshot. Now, that hurt. So I jumped off my bike, and I went after him. And he was screaming his head off, and I was gaining on him as we came around the corner of his house. Do you remember Bill Cosby's uh, routine about Fat Albert? Well, this kid had a sister who was Fat Albert's twin. She was as big as a Mack truck and just as ugly. So the little brat with a slingshot is hiding behind her, and she's in the process of hoisting her vast bulk to her feet, and she had biceps the size of truck tires. I was in fifth grade. What's a fifth grader do against a Mack truck? Nothing. So you slink away defeated. As Christians, we're the little twerp hiding behind the Mack truck. The Heavenly Father in the person of Jesus Christ is our Mack truck. Attack us, mock us, accuse us, blackmail us, whatever. The judge of the universe has got our back. He's the Mack truck we hide behind, and that makes us untouchable. I love that. The other thing here is that our life is hidden in the sense that the world doesn't get it. It's the kind of a life that they can never relate to. 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul puts it this way, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they're folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned and he doesn't have the Spirit. Have you ever heard of procession caterpillars? I, I saw this at a, at a science fair one time. This guy had this, this big bowl and he put this caterpillar on there. And then he put another caterpillar right behind it and another caterpillar until the entire rim of this vase or bowl, whatever it was, was lined with these caterpillars. And they, and they marched around and around. They're called procession caterpillars. They will do this until they fall off and die. I think that uh, that's exactly what's going on in the world. They pursue their big houses and their fancy cars and their designer clothes and their club memberships and their boats thinking that's, that's all life is about. They can't imagine anything else and so they live and die in that miserable cycle, going round and round like caterpillars, never achieving peace and joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. Listen, on the other hand, we are destined to be butterflies. This world is not our home. And then number five, the fifth reason he puts in here is since, since you will eventually appear with Christ in glory. The Apostle Paul, in fact, speaks prolect, pro, proleptically. It's, he's speaking as if it's happened now, but it's still future. Um, Romans 8.30, he says, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. He puts it in the past tense, but it's it's not happened yet. He's speaking of it as if it happened today, but it's still future. So, so when I became a Christian, I was saved and I was glorified, but it's just that the glory hasn't been revealed yet. But that day is coming. As we understand it, believers are gonna be raptured from this world before the time of the great tribulation. Our bodies are gonna be transformed into something new. That is, they're gonna take on the glory that Paul referred to, and at the end of seven years of tribulation, we're gonna return with Christ to the world in a dramatic scene described in Revelation chapter 19, to the shock and awe of the whole world. And here's what the Bible says, Philippians 3, 20 and 21, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables us to subject all things to himself. And then in 1 John 3, 2, John says, Beloved, we are God's children right now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. So the idea is we should start living now in light of what we're going to be. And to Paul, those five reasons are good reasons to be obsessed with the future rather than the sordid presence. We've been given every reason to be thrilled about what's coming up ahead. And we ought to be like the slaves in the South during the Civil War who talked all day, every day, about nothing except what life was going to be like when they're finally free. The fact is, this world is not my home. This is not what we were destined for. We were made for eternity, for glory, not earth. And what I think the Apostle Paul is doing is he's trying to inspire us with this. Here, here's how Don Whitney, he, he wrote a book on spiritual disciplines for the church and he, and he used this. I, I thought this is perfect. He said, imagine a 10-year-old boy sitting in the, in the living room picking away at his guitar while his friends play soccer in the field across the street. His parents signed him up for guitar lessons and he couldn't care less. So one afternoon, an angel visits him in the living room and transports him to Carnegie Hall. And he watches from the wings while a guitar virtuoso does things to a guitar he never dreamed possible. The fingers dance on the strings, and what pours forth his music, sweeter than he's ever heard in his entire life, the music soars and pirouettes through the orchestra hall. The boy smiles through tears when the concert ends, and he asks the angel, who was that man? the angel smiles back and suddenly they're back in the living room and the angel says that was you my son in a few short years but you have to practice and the angel is gone now can you imagine the difference in that boy's approach to his guitar lessons and practice as long as he keeps that vision of the concert in mind he's going to remain powerfully motivated that's what Paul is trying to do for us he's trying to motivate us to focus on the future instead of the humdrum, pointless, here and now. So what are these things we're supposed to set our minds on? Well, certainly not the geography of heaven, although studying Revelation 22 is pretty fascinating with golden streets and pearly gates and rivers of living waters and a city of stunning dimensions, more to the point that is where christ is seated at the right hand of god that's his world and we are his brothers and sisters and we are inheritors of that world it is our ultimate destination our final home and he rules it it's a world where love and forgiveness and grace and mercy reign a world where there's no jockeying for positions no dangerous ambition no power struggles no lusting after gold and silver it's a place of peace and justice and light and compassion a place of joy and pleasure and delight a place of music and wisdom and knowledge it's the kingdom of Christ and I'm a citizen of that and when things get stressful and painful and discouraging and frustrating down here we are not depressed because we remember what's coming up next what does it mean to set your mind on things above well it means dogged persistence determined perseverance. I don't know if you've ever heard of Howard Carter, the archeologist who spent decades of his life sifting through rubble and digging tunnels in the sand and wandering the baking sands of Egypt looking for the tomb of King Tut. And despite years of failure, loss of support, growing concern about his mental health, he persevered until at last he found it. What did he live for? He lived for the tomb of King Tut and now he had all the normal responsibilities anybody else did he had a family he had duties he had responsibilities he had daily demands on his life but always in the back of his mind part of his mind was devoted to the tomb of King Tut so the question you ask yourself is what do you live for I watch kids light up when you mention pizza some people light up when you mention NASCAR for some people music is their life For others, it's sports or money or fashion. You know what the Apostle Paul lit up about? He lit up when you mentioned Christ. For me, he said, to live is Christ. That's what got him up in the morning. He's got a day ahead of him, And how during this day can I honor God, glorify Christ? How can I serve Christ? How can I magnify Christ? That's what was getting him up in the morning. So, So why is it so hard for us to set our minds on things above? And and I assure you, you're not the only ones. Remember Martha, she had a pretty tough time. She got caught up in kitchen duties, and her concern for feeding her guests and being the proper hostess overrode her affection for things above. Judas never got it. His love for money, he held the money bag, you recall, and his desire for prestige overpowered any affection that he might have had for the things above. The rich young ruler came to Jesus, but he couldn't get past his financial holdings. see, the problem is this terrible duality that we we have to live with. We're we're in the world, but we're not supposed to be part of the world. The the heroes of faith in, in Hebrews chapter 11 mastered it somehow. Abraham believed God's promise that his children would inherit the land. He looked forward to a city designed and built by God. And here's what the Holy Spirit said about him and his compatriots in Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, not having actually received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking about that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city." You see, that you know why God was not ashamed to, to be called their God? You, you, you got that, don't you? It's because their hope, their desire was on the life to come, not this one. And we, we just can't seem to get there. We, we, we tend to be like Lot's wife who, you know, here she is being rescued from Sodom and Gomorrah by the angels. They're dragging her away, and she turns around, and she can't take her gaze off. Her house is burning, all of her stuff, everything that she's been living for. The citizens of Pompeii, when they and they've dug through the rubble and under, un, uncovered people buried in lava with their arms full of jewels and clothing and things, and they could have had a chance to escape, but they couldn't leave their stuff, and so they died with their stuff in their arms. There was a, apparently a, a, a true story about a child who got her caught, hand caught in a vase, an expensive one, and her, her dad used olive oil and soap and all different kinds of things, couldn't get her, couldn't get her hand. It was stuck in there. Finally, they had to break the vase and discovered she had found a coin in the vase and she was not letting go of it. That's exactly what so many of us are like. We tend to get caught up with the affairs of this life and we lose perspective. All, all the time I was growing up in church, we used to, we used to sing the song, turn your eyes upon Jesus. And, and the chorus goes this way, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That never happened to me. That part about the things of the earth growing strangely dim. And it hasn't happened for too many of us either. People say things like, my husband died, and it's like I died with him. I, I, I can't go on. I have nothing to live for. I've lost my job. And, and all those years of effort are down the drain. I, I, feel, I feel dead inside. As the years passed, I lived with the hope that I would be married, and I never did get married, and so I've given up hope what's to live for. I've gone to church all of my life and I tried to be a good person and now I've lost all my retirement funds and Bitcoins. What, what good did it all do to me? You see, those are people who never got their noses out of the world. They, they never caught a glimpse of the world beyond this one. They're so locked into the world that really, when it comes down to it, nothing exists beyond this one. And we want to frown and criticize them sitting here in church, but out in life we do the same things. So here's the resolution of this terrible duality. Yes, we are in the world. But we don't belong. We were made for something more, something very better. This is, a, this is just a necessary interlude. It's, it's boot camp. It's, it's temporary housing. It's like we're on the porch, and the house is being prepared for us. Peter tells us we're strangers, we're pilgrims, we're peculiar people, meaning we don't fit in. Paul tells us we're ambassadors. We have our, our citizenship somewhere else, and we represent that kingdom. We're not part of this culture. And we could be subject to recall at any time, so why would we put down our roots in the host country? Think think of it this way. You're given a a, a tumble-down, abandoned piece of property to occupy while a fabulous home is being built for you across the river in a fabulous city. And eventually a ferry is gonna come, take you across to the other side where you will live in your incredible, new, fabulous home. But meanwhile, you fix up the abandoned place a little bit, you know, after all, you don't know how long you're going to be there. And so repair the roof, in fact, replace the roof and, uh, and do some painting. And the carpet's rotten, so you replace that. And windows are warped and drafty, so need new windows. And eventually put a fence around the backyard and add a jungle gym for the kids. And uh, eventually you finish off both the attic and the basement for kids, you know, and for ministry. And you try to entertain people from church and you use a place for Christian hospitality. And at some point you added a pool and a gazebo out in the garden and air conditioning and some furniture upgrades help the place along. And, And then eventually the ferry arrives to take you across the river to your new place. But you put all that time and money and effort into this place. It's home. You raise the kids there. It means a lot. You can't just walk away from it. You really don't want to leave. you actually fight to stay there a little longer what in the world happened well you didn't set your affections on things on the other side of the river you set them on things here on this side which is why so many of us when it gets down to end of life issues we really don't want to die we really don't want to go to heaven you want to stay here because this is all we know this is what we've invested in rather than as jesus suggested sending it out ahead matthew 6 He said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break through and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now you can think about things above when you're in church on Sunday, but once you go outside the doors and back to the real world, there's no time to daydream about heaven And we're back to raking in the muck. So how can I make things above the default setting of my mind? Well, number one, get a solid grasp on the fact that you are already delivered from bondage to this world. Galatians 1.4, he gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world. A woman told her pastor one time, she said, I had a vivid dream in which an angel from God told me that this world is coming to an end very, very soon. And he replied, well, that's okay by me. I can get along without it. It's exactly right. It's no disaster to lose what is only temporary in the first place and destined for the fire. Secondly, fill your mind with truth about Christ. Read about Christ. Talk about Christ, meditate on Christ, worship Christ. The more time you spend with Christ, the more passionate you will become about Christ. Now, during my youth pastor days back in Minneapolis, I organized youth trips and camps and retreats and conclaves and all sorts of activities and events. And always my mind is swimming with details, always rehearsing what's coming up next. And one night after we were married, I was in Pennsylvania with 50 kids on a Easter trip to New York City. And I had everybody bedded down for the night. And uh, finally, as I lay down, normally I would review the itinerary for the next day and try to make sure I've got every, all the ducks in the order. And to my surprise, I was thinking about Ev. In fact, I noticed that whenever there was downtime of any kind, my mind drifted to Ev. I had dated her. I learned to love her, I married her so I could live with her, and now she had become the default setting of my mind. I I still took care of business, and I enjoyed what I was doing, and I participated in life, but when I had time to think, my mind drifted off to Eve. Now the Apostle Paul thinks our minds should drift off to Christ and things above. And then number three is recommend Christ, because the more you promote Christ, the more you defend Christ, the more, you, the more you stand up for the truth of Christ, the more you I found this out in high school, because I went to a public high school back in the 60s, and, and this was the days of the hippie movement, the flower children, free love, abortion, and uh, all, all that kind of stuff. And in the secular high school that I went to, I was kind of a lone voice, and I was taking a stand against abortion and all these kind of things. And you can't just say, well, uh, that's against my religion, or uh, that, my, my parents... I, I couldn't do that, so I would go home, and, and I would study the Bible, and, and I huddled with my youth pastor, and my pastor, and my parents, and, and, I, and, I, and I came up with biblical answers so that I could respond to them in a way that made sense and was logical, and, and I discovered that the more I defended the truth, the more precious it became to me. Your passion is what you talk about most often. It's what you daydream about. It's what your mind drifts to in idle moments, that being the case. A lot of us have to admit that contrary to the song we used to sing, this world is my home. And we need to work on changing that. Why don't we sing that? This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Just over in glory land, we'll live eternally. The saints on every hand are shouting victory. Their songs of sweetest praise drift back from heaven's shore. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. O Lord, you know I have no friend like you. If heaven's not my home, then, Lord, what will I do? The angels beckon me from heaven.